0: Welcome to the US Sports Podcast with me, Max Whittle. Each week, I try and take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers around American sport, and I hope to have done just that this week. Mark fainer the co-author of the book League of Denial about the NFL and concussions. He basically, along with his brother Steve fainer broke the news and the story of the NFL's concussion problem. It is a fascinating read. It's been out for four years now. Go and read it, but first listen to this podcast because Mark is going to go in-depth about the book, but also the timeline since four years ago. So much has happened in the NFL. Chris Borland retires. Ben Roethlisberger pulls himself out of a game. Dr. Anne McKee, the recent study in the New York Times. This subject is evolving, and I know you'll all be saying up there, we're four days away from kickoff in the 2017 NFL season, but this is an important issue and one that needs to be brought to the fore right before another football season begins. So let's get to Mark fainer co-author of the book League of Denial, he also works for ESPN. Mark, it's been three years since the book came out. How are you? Four years, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm good, Max. Thanks. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, I'm very well. I'm just curious, first of all, what would be your sort of concussion timeline since since that period when the book came out to, to today?
1: Oh, there's there's just, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, so much continues to happen. I think Steve and I keep thinking we're sort of in some ways done with the story and, and moving on to, to sort of other issues, but... You know, I, I think a number of different things have happened in the wake of the, uh, either in the wake of the book or just since then. Um, you know, I think there's a, one of the questions we get oftentimes still is, you know, you hear a lot of parents having this discussion about whether to let their kids play. And and in the States, that's certainly a, a major discussion point. You know, I, I think we wrote a story a few years ago that talked about a 10% decline in participation rates and. And Pop Warner football, which is one of the youth, major youth leagues here in the states, um, and so you've seen you've seen that that sort of issue. And, and we're just—I was just reading stories in the past few days about various youth leagues, um, you know, dropping the sport because they no longer have enough players. Um, not a lot of that, obviously, but it's happening here and there. Or people transitioning to flag football. Um, another sort of major narrative for us that we've been covering is a look at you know, how is the NFL continuing to to deal in this space, and what are the, uh, sort of financially, how are they, uh, are they funding research? We just did a story the other day that looked at the way the NFL has essentially taken this in-house. Um, they previously had donated $30 million to the National Institutes of Health, which is a, you know, major, one of the the largest independent research bodies in the world, very well regarded as an independent body of research. And, the league gave that money to them thinking, or saying, look, we, we, we want to let research go where it's going to go. Um, but in the middle of that, they basically uh, basically uh, tried to influence one of the studies because they didn't like where it was going and who it was going to. And then about half of that money ended up being left on the table when the deal ended the other day. So subsequent to that they announced a new partnership a hundred million dollars um, or not a partnership a, a new program which they were going to donate a hundred million dollars to research but effectively we were writing this the other day that that it's really a hundred million dollars that's internal research um, and actually one of the one of the places that they've done they touted as as, as uh, who they were contributing to that that research to was a, a group out of the uk run by a gentleman named dr michael Turner um and those guys are, are basically studying jockeys um, and the argument seems to be that that jockeys get more concussions than anyone else and uh, they don't seem to be having long-term issues so there must be some other story about CTE the, the neurodegenerative disease than actually brain trauma and and that seems to be something the NFL is, is quite interested in for you know, what, what are probably obvious reasons to some people.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. So it was sent, would it maybe take the element of football out of it? or well, not out of it completely, but you just, you talk about jockeys there and it's a different impact to, to footballers. Is the NFL encouraged by that?
1: Well, I think that's one of the things that we, we talked about in this story is that you had a number of researchers who found the idea of, of of drawing analogies between jockeys and football players or even rugby players, um, sort of a, a questionable analogy because, because with jockeys, their argument is with jockeys, you are talking about sort of an acute concussion where a, a jockey is falling off a horse, getting a concussion. Also that that jockey is presumably having time to recover because it's clear they've fallen off the horse. Um, it's not at all, as, as several researchers told us, the same as the kind of repetitive trauma that happens in every game, virtually on every play at the line of scrimmage in American football. So, um, you know, there's, there's, I think, a lot of scientists who found this idea that the NFL would be investing in, in the suggestion that jockeys are perhaps an answer to making football safer um, a bit, you know, well, either naive or sort of laughable.
0: I'm sure you saw the New York Times interactive story that said 100. Wait, well, found 110 of the 111 examined brains. There were found to have CTE. I know that the families would have donated those brains for a reason, but did, was it something you expected and you weren't surprised about?
1: Well, I think we reported on that as well. I, I think that that um, you know that those numbers have continued to grow, and we've spent a lot of time talking to the folks at Boston University. Where that research is coming out of and and i think what what actually to me what was most startling out of those numbers um was was when you looked at the actual breakdown of players and maybe startling is the wrong word but um you know almost half i think of those players were offensive or defensive linemen and to me you know I thought that reaffirmed the message that, that the folks at Boston University and so many others are, are now beginning to say, which is that this is a dose issue. This is repetitive trauma. It's not single incident acute trauma or acute concussion that's happening when a, a defensive back, you know, goes flying into a wide receiver uh, and causes a concussion. It's actually the trauma that happens on every play and every game. And so, Um, I, I, you know, I think there's certainly questions about what actually is the true prevalence of the disease, because it's not 110 out of 111, obviously, because they're getting a, as you say, it's a skewed, you know, we, we, many people, including the BU people have talked about, it's a skewed data set, they're getting the brains of people whose families are having, the players are having issues. And so they know there's problems. But I think what's really telling about that number is the number of players who are offensive or defensive linemen, and then linebackers um, and running backs, because that speaks to the kind of repetitive trauma that that um, backs up their suggestion.
0: I don't know if anyone's ever asked you this, but having seen all of the, you know, the high percentage of players, former players that have CTE, why don't those who are still out there now talking football on cbs and the espn those who are 80 years old at home why why don't they have cte
1: well i think it's uh, the the thing that that i've always said to people is it's like smoking everybody who smokes doesn't get get lung cancer right um so this is the best analogy i think people have made you know there's there's certain comparisons to smoking that are apt about this and others that are not it's it's you know, it's a—it's not the scourge that smoking is, in that, and that you know, here in the states where you know, and, and elsewhere around the world where you can't smoke inside of a restaurant anymore, no one's complaining about that. Really, no one's complaining that you can't smoke on an airplane anymore. People would complain greatly if football were were uh, outlawed. But, but I think there are similarities to draw around the disease, for example, and, and in this case, as you say. So, why isn't everybody getting it? And I think that's a question that. A lot of the researchers are, are really focused on and want answers to. Is there some sort of genetic predisposition, predisposition where certain players are more liable to get it than others? Uh, does it have to do with position? Does it have to do with how long you've been playing the sport? Uh, how, how often you were exposed at a younger level? I mean, I think there's, there's all sorts of probably answers within that. Um, and I think that's one of the areas of research that really, um, is, is screaming out. But, um, you know, I think this is a that 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 question that has been used a lot by the NFL and other researchers is sort of a false narrative. They they suggest that like the media and everybody else is screaming that like every player is going to get it, or if you get a concussion, you're going to get it, and that's just not what's being said. In fact, um, you know, the reports are what they are in terms of the numbers, and everybody says the data skewed. And the question is, why do some people get it and why do others not? In the same way that you know, somebody might smoke three packs of cigarettes a day and get blood cancer, and somebody might smoke one and not, or vice versa.
0: You talked about the positioning of those players as well on the list of Dr. Ann McKee was heavily involved with, and there were place kickers and punters on that list. Do we do we know how many hits or how many years or what position causes this disease, or are we, are we no closer to that?
1: I mean, I think... I. I don't think we are in terms of. I think we're closer in terms of looking at the breakdown from from McKee's numbers and saying, "Well, this position appears to be more likely to get it than others." But in terms of uh, in terms of like definitive data around that uh, and true prevalence, I don't, I don't think we are. But I, you know, I, I think those questions around. I think what people would ask for questions around those punters and kickers is. You know, what did they? What positions were they playing in, in college or what positions were they playing in high school? Mm. How long ago did they start playing? Did they start playing Pop Warner football at age six? Um, and obviously they weren't just kicking at age six or they weren't kicking only in high school probably. So, um, you know, I, th- I, I'm, I think those are the questions that researchers would be asking. You know, increasingly McKee talks about it being a dose-related um a disease and so it's amount of exposure that's happening and so that's a matter of time and it's also a matter of of exactly how often players are getting hit
0: and one of the reasons i asked you about this timeline uh, scenario i spoke to you over three years ago and since then you've had guys like chris ball retire you've had ben rothelsberger take himself out of a game and Big Ben had that quote earlier this preseason. He said, "You can have a lot of body parts replaced, but you can't do a brain transplant." Now, first of all, what did you make of Roethlisberger's decision to take himself out of the game? And you know, do you feel like he is one of he's going to start this trend where veteran players really start concerning themselves with their health?
1: I mean, I I think the paradigm is certainly shifting, and the and the mentality is shifting. I mean, we were you know we spent a lot of time with Chris Borland, for example um the former rookie 49ers player here in the in, in the bay area where i live and you interviewed you know, him after I think it was that fascinating. Right? what's that
0: you interviewed him after he retired right
1: we did we spent several months with chris and ended up working up a long story about sort of what was life and what the aftermath of retiring was like for him not only what led to his decision <clears throat> but then what the aftermath was like and and i think you know, he's a he's he's maybe he's not an aberration, but but certainly there's not thousands of players following suit, or even hundreds of players, or tens of players following suit. But I think there are increasingly players who are asking themselves questions about uh, what's the potential for for future issues around their brain. And Chris has said he he's gotten calls and emails from people, and and I think you know when you have people like Roethlisberger, um, you know, making the decisions they do or saying the things they do, that has an impact you know, on everybody. Um, I I think the biggest, you know, I I think there's two pieces to this. There's the question of how does it impact at the pro level and what do pro players do? You know, we're seeing every now and then there's a player who retires and cites, uh, retires early and cites um, potential brain issues. Um, But then there's also what we were talking about earlier where we're really wondering what are the implications at the youth level and the feeder system to colleges and the NFL? You know, do parents start to To have their kids play less that seems to be happening at least it did a few years ago when we were writing about it and and there seems to be an increasing issue around certain leagues being able to maintain the numbers to to participate at the youth level Um, i think insurance is actually going to be a big factor in those discussions as well because it's it's an expensive sport to play both in terms of equipment um, and getting everybody properly equipped but then in terms of insuring everybody so I think there's sort of two separate discussions. What's happening at the pro level and, and how does that impact the number of players who are gonna to continue to sort of speak out or or um or make decisions and then and then what happens at the youth level.
0: I feel like we should be more concerned with college players because they won't they won't get paid. They don't get paid. They're they're used as it is and that's a separate issue in college. But are you are you concerned? with college football and, and the fact that most of those guys won't play in the NFL, they won't have the money to, to recover if they do have an injury.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, it's very much an un, untouched area. I mean, certainly some people have reported on it and there is a, there, there was a, a, a lawsuit related to it. Um, but, but I think you're right. And one of the things I've always talked about for several years now, not even just around the brain issue, but You know those guys leave the sport. Most of them are not going to make it to the pro level, and they have no health insurance afterwards that's going to cover them for the issues that they've had, unless their actual job, whatever they, whatever job they get into, is going to cover that. So um, I think those are really significant questions and issues. Um, You know, the NCAA, like the NFL, is spending a lot of money now on this issue. I think there are some researchers who question whether they're spending it in the right ways, Um, but. Uh, but they do have a program in partnership with the Department of Defense in which they're sort of examining discussions. I mean, I think one of the interesting things when you look at the money that's being spent on these questions is, and this was a big focus of our NFL story, is at least right now there does not seem to be a lot of money spent around the question of long-term issues. It seems to be spent on sort of preventative, right? Can we prevent a concussion? The NFL is focused on the idea of building a sort of perfect helmet. Well, a lot of researchers think that's a flawed idea, um, but you can understand why the leagues and the sports organizations would be focused around this question of let's build a better helmet as opposed to possibly looking at the long-term implications um, because the answers to those questions may not be what they necessarily want to hear at this point.
0: And obviously four days out until the start of the 2017 season and some right. fat, some people that will be listening going, why are you talking about concussions now? we just want to f- we just want to focus on football but i think it's 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 interesting i pick, i picked up that at, and talk back about the times uh, story again i saw the line about jerry jones who still rejects the link between football and cte there are just these people in football fans included that choose to ignore the subject is is that a fact that jerry jones still doesn't doesn't think there's a link there
1: I mean, I haven't, I haven't read anything from him that, that would suggest his views have changed. And in fact, one of the sort of major points of the story we just did was, uh, or a point that we just did, was that the NFL, even though one of their top health officials seemed to acknowledge in a congressional hearing about a year ago that, okay, there's a link between these things, the league seems to be sending out sort of this this message that's, that's wondering whether this is still, you know, defined. There's a group that met uh last year i think it is last year out of berlin they meet every four years they're called the concussion and sport group and it's a group of basically largely doctors and researchers affiliated with sports governing bodies and on that group is a huge number of nfl affiliated researchers and then others who are associated with everything from world rugby to fifa to um to the nhl and and their message to the world was the link between the connection between Repetitive trauma and CTE is unknown. Um, That's a message that is still being, you know, being pushed. Um, You know, Ann McKee, I think, will tell you, the Boston University researcher, that the sort of attack on this research is more brutal than ever. So, um, you know, this is a narrative that continues to come out of particularly sports governing bodies who have a huge financial interest in, in, you know, in, in this not being the reality.
0: Back to your book, quickly, League of Denial. Uh, Obviously, a book and an investigation that the NFL didn't cooperate with. You've admitted it. Um, You had the the big feature-length series about it. If you talk about Mike Webster first, someone who's really featured heavily in it uh, to start the book, the the former Steeler, of course, such a central figure in that book. Why was he?
1: Well, he's really ground zero of, of the discussion around CTE, this neurodegenerative disease that's been found in football players, um webster was the first player diagnosed with this disease he ends up on the he's in pittsburgh and after his retirement um, from football he really spins his life sort of devolves to the point that ultimately he's no longer recognizable to friends and family he really begins to lose his mind and um uh and he ends up dying of a heart attack at the age of 50 and he he just happens to end up on the autopsy table of a doc. this doctor Bennett amala who is sort of also featured in our book and a sort of central figure to the debate now around around football and brain damage. And it's Amalu who makes the decision to examine Webster's brain. Um, and and it really changes football because Amalu discovers that in Webster's brain is this disease previously seen largely in boxers, punch-drunk syndrome, essentially, as it was called, or at least a form of it, reports on that and thinks he's going to be celebrated for his finding, but instead is attacked by the NFL and, and other you know, other sort of officials associated with leagues, ultimately, um, he becomes a flashpoint. And so Webster and his story both humanizes what happens to players as they go through this disease, um, but then also he is sort of, he's such a central figure because he's, he's again, as I said, ground zero. He's the first patient zero. He's the first patient um, diagnosed, the first former football player diagnosed with this disease.
0: Uh, what I found really interesting was when, Dr. Bennett Amalu actually said he wished he'd never met Mike Webster because the way the NFL attacked him and and everything else that went along with his story. Do do you know where what he's up to these days, and is he
1: still involved? He he is. I don't know. I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we got to know Dr. Amalu relatively well, and I, I you know I always was struck when he would say that. I think that there's a part of that that was true for him, but then I think a part of him that really um, relished being in this. He he's continued to. You know, on the one hand, he has been marginalized from the discussion in that, um, you know, the folks at Boston University now are seeing more brains than anyone, um, and they are really in the in the heat of the research. Um, on the other hand, Amalu was the subject of a movie, a, a big movie concussion with Will Smith playing him, and, um, and then he's recently released his own autobiography um, that focuses sort of on his experience. Um, and I know he's getting um, certainly coverage for that, and, and um, I see him you know, sending out social media messages about it regularly. So he's still in it um, in many ways, and yet he's also this figure who, in, in some cases because of his own sort of um, you know, eccentricities and, and, um, and willingness to say things that I think are really um, – and, and present in ways that are, are troubling to some people – um, he He gets in his own way at times. we tried to articulate that in the book a lot. i think um it 's not so much in that documentary but um but I think he 's so he 's he 's in this mixed place where he 's very much still in it and yet also st- sort of marginalized
0: we 're talking to Mark Fenuwardde co author of League of Denial. Did you watch concussion? What did you think of the film
1: <laughs> well uh I, I, I had very mixed feelings about it. I mean, on the one hand, I think that, uh, you know, I was glad for Dr. Amalu that he was getting the, uh, attention and, um, credit that he deserves for bringing this issue to the fore. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, our book really hopefully focused and gave attention to that and his role in it all. um, But I also think it, um, you know, I had had issues with it on a number of levels, not least of which was I thought, you know, it it really, like, demonized the NFL in ways that were unnecessary, right, and also false. Like, it it took some material that that sort of had never been reported before and was seen only in our book. I'm sure they re-reported it and talked to other people, I would guess. but it, it, it sort of crafted the NFL as this demonized figure unnecessarily in some ways. For example, this, there was a suggestion that like the NFL was following Bennett Amala's wife and, and, and helped lead to a miscarriage that she had. And there was a suggestion that the FBI had been doing the bidding of the NFL. I mean, just all this sort of stuff that was not only false, but, but really sort of took out any of the nuance of what the reality was. And I, I thought that was really unfortunate. It it made one doctor, this Dr. Joe Maroon, who we had spoken to, and it's and is definitely in a mixed place. He's a Steelers neurosurgeon and, and, um, and very much affiliated with the league, but had actually been a person who was pushing the league to try and look at Dr. Amalu's work. It turned him into this figure who basically threatened Amalu, which was far from the truth. So I, I found the movie, uh, I had a lot of problems with it, and I think part of that is my own sort of, you know, deep connection to the book and the story, um, but again, I was happy that Amalu got the credit um, that he he deserves to be getting.
0: It's kind of the difference between reality and Hollywood, pretty much. Um,
1: yeah, you know. I mean, it was a very Hollywood Hollywoodized version of that of that story, and I and I frankly thought it was unnecessary. I mean, in full disclosure, HBO had optioned our book and was looking at making um, that and and the. The folks who did concussion beat HBO to it, and so the the that version uh, never got made. And I, I you know, I, I guess I would just say I think that you know that that I think part of that issue for me is not so much that that somebody else beat them to it, but that such a sort of unnuanced and, um, and in some cases really problematic version made it to the to the world. But again, I think the basics of the story, Amalu discovering this disease in a football player for the first time. And being attacked for his position, um, that sort of simple message was very much important to, to, to get out there to a much broader audience.
0: Now, something I know you've talked a lot about uh, that you talk about in the book, the Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee, which was this group put together by the NFL, Dr. Elliot Pellman, who was a rheumatologist, um, which sounds hilariously terrible um what you know he had no qualifications to run that group but my question would be though, do we still see these odd appointments within the nfl if you look at a case like deflate gate and and all the all these similar scenarios do we still see those appointments
1: well i i don't know that i can speak as much to those other groups but i think if you look at the concussion issue I mean the the league made a move in two thousand and ten to sort of essentially blow up that old committee and put in a new group of researchers. And those are re- led by very respected many are neuro you know, people who are in the neuroscience world. Many of them are neurosurgeons. The two leaders are neurosurgeons. I think the glaring absence in that group is a neuropathologist. There's still nobody like an Ann McKee or a Bennett Amalu who uh um, who's actually dissecting brains, looking at them, and seeing this disease? And you know, and I and I think the other piece of this that we've reported a lot on is that is that you know these doctors, while they say they're independent, while they aren't getting paid by the league, the message seems to be continuing from the NFL and from these researchers, at least around the question of long term, that there's just way more answer, questions than answers and. Well, there may be some truth to that issue, there seems to be a, um, you know, as we reported in our story, there's a, there's a effort to sort of focus either away from that issue with the research or to raise doubts about the sort of real significance of the, of the disease or to suggest it's been overplayed. And, you know, as well, a number of these doctors are affiliated with organizations now that have received, you know, money from the league to create concussion institutes. For example, the the two co-chairs of the, the NFL's head, neck, and spine committee, which is the renamed uh, MTBI committee, those 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 they work at institutions that have received substantive support from the league to create, uh, um, you know, to help create these sort of concussion institutes. So, um, you know, I don't think anybody would argue that these these doctors don't have conflicts to deal with. Um, other than maybe the doctors themselves, so um, you know, I think there's real questions that remain around. I mean, I think in some ways it's it's not that complicated, right? The the story we had the other day, you had a we had a quote from a, a regarded concussion researcher who said, "Look, this is this is you know, let's you can call this what it is. Basically, this is internal research. So, the league is funding a hundred million dollars of research. Many of the much of it they're doing themselves." Uh, or are determining how it's going to be spent
0: a couple more questions for you mark and i'll let you go um sure. giselle tom brady's wife had a lot to say this right. summer about him and his concussions and I, I think there was a method to that and and certainly she wasn't asked directly about concussions so i mean what where do you think she was going with that and do you see do you think it's stupid that anyone would think tom brady doesn't have didn't have concussions last season
1: well, I think it would, yeah, I think it would be naive just watching football to think that. I mean, and I I think what's interesting, I mean, I don't, I certainly don't know what was in Giselle's head, obviously, and I, I think it was, you know, it's, I, I think like we hear from a lot of, of families of former players, they rec, or current players, they're recognizing that their, their loved ones are, are in a, obviously a violent sport, a collision sport, and that inevitably they're going to be having issues. And I, but I think, especially with current players, they just want to stay on the field, right? Because there's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, the younger players need to stay on the field because they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs. Older players want to stay on the field, or older established players like a Brady just want to play and help their teams, or many other reasons. So, I don't think that piece is actually that complicated. I I think what's, you know, what 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 part of this sort of discussion ends up being is uh, what what I actually find. This is a little bit away from the discussion around Giselle, but, but I think one of the things that, that a lot of researchers are talking about is that the focus around concussion and, and making, making a discussion around a player having a concussion having to leave a game actually is to the benefit of the NFL because the issue, they believe, again, is these sort of sub-concussive blows, the blows that are happening on every play, especially at the line of scrimmage. And so as long as the focus of the debate and discussion can be around single incident concussion – it sort of minimizes the issues that the league has to deal with. It's it's a much more manageable question, right? So, if the right set of eyes are watching a player from up above and can see that he's having issues, um, or the sideline doctor can see that a player is having issues, they can go through the process of trying to get them out of the game. Now, there's a whole series of questions around how ex- how exactly how um, good that process is. Well, I'm thinking how of Case Keenan. Yeah, exactly. How easy is it? Either, either is who's missing those issues, like in the Keenum case, or how easy is it for a player to pass the test on the sideline and get back into a game when there's real questions about the sideline test and whether you could determine a player's level of concussion or whether he has a concussion, you know, in a six-minute test. Um, but again, I think all of that discussion, in some fashion, helps the league because it does. At least this is what a lot of researchers tell us: is it. It keeps the discussion around single incidents and, and issues the league can try to address through fines or penalties, as opposed to just the nature of the sport.
0: Yeah, what's really interesting, I don't know if you've watched Last Chance You on Netflix, the documentary series about um, a community college, and you watch their coverage of the mm, games yeah. themselves, slow motion high impact you just see in those real documentaries how many con- how much contact there is in in just one game and that's at junior college level it's it's actually frightening
1: that's interesting I, i'll have to i haven't seen that i mean I, I think what's you know it'd be very interesting to watch that and see how that that translates it's it's you you saying that it reflects the number of hits cuz one of the things that i've always said is i don't think fans really grasp the nature of the sport um you know, my brothers made a, a, a great analogy I think, which which I think it was his. I don't know if he stole it. I, I think he said it was his. <laughs> that that uh um you know, the, the, the game I always say the game is so fast, it's so much faster than people have a sense of. And I, I remember the very first time that I ever got a got a sense of exactly how powerful it was was standing on the sideline of an NFL game for the last two minutes. And just watching and listening, it's so loud. It's so fast. Even plays that don't seem to be any big deal, where a player runs up the middle and is tackled for a yard gain and everybody just gets up. The ferocity of the hits, the, 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 the noise is just amazing. And I, as good as HD television has gotten, I don't think it at all translates. And so the analogy that Steve makes is, is it's, it's the difference between if you were uh, flying above a freeway and watching cars fly by at 65 or 70 miles an hour versus standing on the median and those cars flying by you, Mm. right? Just a dramatic difference in how you would experience something. And I, again, I think as good as television has gotten at translating this, um, there's just like, if you're sitting in the stands, if you're watching on TV, you don't possibly understand exactly how loud or violent the sport is.
0: And uh, covering the games here at Wembley and Twickenham, you just seeing a lineman walk out of the tunnel with his pads and his helmet on they're already ridiculously big and then with all that gear on that's when I think well if I get hit by him just once you know especially someone like me I'm going down anyway um, I think it's really important before you go just to tell the Troy Aikman story uh, with Lee Steinberg and what happened with Aikman because people are going to hear Aikman on their TVs this weekend and and they don't know what he went through as a player necessarily um, so yeah, I think that would be important to hear.
1: Sure, I'll, I'll try to remember it. It's been a while. I'll, I'll, you know, my my own memory seems to be to be fading at times, but I'll, I'll do my best to to try and recount it. So, Aikman is playing in a, uh, and you can you can fill in where I'm missing. But Aikman is playing in a um, in an NFC Championship game, basically the game to, to lead into the Super Bowl, and he suffers a a brutal concussion. He's hit and um, and he actually ends up in the hospital. And um, uh, and there's question about you know is he is he going to be able to play? Will he be ready? And there's all sorts of questions around the significance of the injury when he when he when he ends up in the hospital. And Lee Steinberg is who his agent, um, and he's the he's the agent who many people say is modeled after the movie uh, Jerry McGraw, Jerry Maguire. He's a consultant on the movie, and the story seems to revolve around the history of, of Steinberg. And so Steinberg goes to see Aikman in the hospital, and and Aikman is sort of oh, here's lee that's great to see you and and he begins to ask steinberg what happened in the game how did we do he he doesn't have any recollection of the game basically and how he did and steinberg proceeds to tell him oh you you guys won you did fantastic you threw three touchdowns or whatever it is and you guys are going to the super bowl and Aikman seems to process that and then and then uh a few minutes later, his eyes sort of perk up again, and he, he looks at Lee, and he says, what happened in the game? How did we do? Did we win? Steinberg again tells him the very exact same thing, like, you know, yes, you guys won. You're going to the Super Bowl. You did great. You threw three touchdowns or whatever it is. And and this this happened once a third time, and, and Steinberg later tells us when we're reporting on this for the book, and he's told this publicly many times, it's like it was the Sort of a major light bulb for him about the significance of of concussion, um, and yet, of course, uh, you know, days later or a week later, Aikman is up, he's playing in the game, <laughs> he's playing in the Super Bowl, and leading his team. So, um, you know, again, I, I think the the significance of, of trauma, I think, was what really hit Steinberg um, and the repetitive hits, but. But it's interesting because Aikman is one of those examples that you were talking about earlier. Why you know he's he's clearly mm. he's clearly very articulate and able to present in a in a game, and he seems to be doing great as far as at least you can tell from the outward. So um, again, that raises those questions of why do some players get it and, and others don't?
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. You can hear if you know that story and you hear Aikman on a Sunday, you would you'd put nothing together. Um, last one. I know Amaki has said, you know, her mindset now, she said there's no debate, there is a problem in the NFL with concussions. Do you think uh, is it only culture that would lead you to football now in terms of starting to play it?
1: Do, I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. One more time?
0: If you decide to play football in America, do you think it's
1: mostly yeah. because of culture other than any other reason? Uh, no, I, I mean, look, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's still this... You know this is America's sport whether people want to accept baseball wants to accept it or not it's the most popular sport in America there's 14 billion it's a 14 billion dollar industry in the NFL across incredible amounts of of the country it's very popular Texas Florida California here where I live um, many states throughout the Midwest it's just a very popular sport and i I think you know and 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 many people will tell you there's incredible value to the to playing the sport from a team aspect to the athletics around it, all of that. I think there are questions around why, you know, that the parents are beginning to ask. Well, why do I have to have my kid play this? He could play some other sport, or why does he have to play until he's fourteen, uh, or why? Until, why can't he play until he's? Why can not he start playing and you know at high school level play flag football before that? But I, I think you know there there's certainly a cultural dynamic around the sport that leads people to it. Um, but I think it's larger than that at this point. I do think you know, what you're asking sort of speaks to this question of where the future heads with the sport. And there is, there is certainly a, a, a theory that some folks, including Lee Steinberg himself, have espoused that where we're headed is to a, um, a sort of separation of classes around the sport where you're going to see increasingly um, parents of more affluent kids pulling their kids out of, out of football and having them play other sports that they believe are, you know, considerably safer or are going to avoid head trauma, like soccer, golf. I mean, soccer, golf, tennis, um, whatever, um, and um, and that you're still going to see a, a sort of middle and and um, and more urban uh, uh, group of players playing as a means of sort of escape. And I, I just think we're too early in the discussion to have any sense of really where that's going. I, I think as we talked about earlier, you are seeing. In pockets around the country just sort of single incident stories of of um, organizations dropping football because of participation and whether it bears out that that, that breaks down in, in the ways we were just describing I, I think remains to be seen.
0: Yeah well I hope it keeps evolving I mean I think it's a good sign that people like Pete Carroll are bringing in rugby coaches to teach their players how to tackle and thinking of preserving players that way might be a good route to take if you want to play football, but you've got to learn to not fly, you know, fly at an attack, an opponent. I see when I watch rugby here and I watch the NFL, the tackling model is, is, there is no tackle model in the NFL, in my opinion. It's just throw yourself at well, the player.
1: Well, I think there's, there's definitely some truth to that. And, of course, the helmet changes everything. Wearing that helmet, which protects against uh, skull fracture, but not against concussion and, and trauma, and is in some ways a weapon but i i do think like you know increasingly as i've i've read about this and tried to do some research around sort of what's happening in europe you know rugby is dealing with this issue as well and i think the questions are coming Mm. um and while it's true tackling is different you know i i think that this issue you're you're talking about sort of underscores the concussion debate as opposed to the sort of repetitive trauma debate and and again i it's a distinction that probably is sort of in the weeds and, and you sort of geeky almost if you're dealing with the story a lot the way we are. But, hmm. but I do think it's a distinction that the folks at Boston university and many elsewhere are making. And it, and it's a, you know, you look at rugby, obviously there's repetitive trauma going on in rugby, whether players are getting concussions or not is a different issue, but the, but, but guys are running into each other all the time. And so I think there's going to be real questions as the research begins to play out. Is there a, you know what is the incidence of, of long-term issues in sports like rugby in sports like soccer um, in sports like hockey um, and and how do you well, how and can that stuff be legislated out?
0: Well, Mark, I really appreciate your time. I know this is a topic that you've spoken about at length and it's continuing, so I uh, appreciate it.
1: Oh it's my pleasure, Max. I really appreciate your interest in it and, and the opportunity to chat about it.
0: Thanks to Mark and thanks to you for listening out there. I will have a football-only discussion before kickoff Patriots-Chiefs on Thursday night. Football. Neil Reynolds of Sky Sports NFL is going to be coming on to preview the 2017 NFL season. So I look forward to that. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mark freyner Wada. If you like what you've heard, please go on to iTunes, the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle. Leave me a review and you can subscribe to the podcast there. And please rate the podcast out of five stars. I will speak to you very soon. Get ready for NFL football. It's coming. But I think we should stay focused on the concussion issue. It's a big one, as you heard from Mark. I'll speak to you soon.